This is an ABC podcast. Own your look with fewer lines. There's only one Botox cosmetic. It's the only one FDA The High Court decision that's put a frown on the face of Botox. Instant Botox alternative. And a judge overturns the prison sentence of the climate change activist who blocked a lane on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Those stories coming up shortly on The Law Report. Damien Carrick with you. In a legal first, an SAS veteran has been charged with the war crime of murder. The allegations relate to the shooting death of an Afghan man while the soldier was deployed in Afghanistan with Australian forces in 2012. It's the first time an Australian serviceman or veteran has been charged with a war crime under Australian law. International law expert Professor Ben Saul says the laying of the charges is a significant and remarkable legal development. This is the first time an Australian soldier has been charged with a war crime under international law in over a century of Australian military conflict. It shows that the Australian government is taking very seriously our obligations under international humanitarian law to hold our own people to account and, of course, to avoid the International Criminal Court having to investigate Australian soldiers. Indeed, the International Criminal Court only tends to step in when it feels that it has no confidence in individual governments holding their own citizens or soldiers to account for this kind of offence. That's right. If Australia has been uh, unable or unwilling to hold to account its own forces, that's the point at which the International Court would step in. So, of course, it's also much better from a policy standpoint that Australia takes responsibility for its own violations and uh, owns up to abuses committed by our forces and prosecutes them before the Australian courts so that the Australian public have confidence that our soldiers only use force appropriately when they're at war. And recently, there have been a number of our allies, the US, the UK, that don't seem to have held accountable their soldiers when accused of comparable crimes in places like Afghanistan or Iraq. So so bearing in mind, of course, these are only allegations at this point in time, but you would welcome the idea that we have an ability to investigate allegations against our own forces. That's right. Australia has comprehensive war crimes legislation in place. We're a a party to the International Criminal Court statute, which of course means we, we have to investigate our own precisely in order to avoid the shame of our soldiers being brought before the International Criminal Court. And what kind of court would hear this kind of charge? War crimes are prosecuted before ordinary Australian civilian criminal courts. Not military courts. Not through the military courts martial system or military justice system, which tend to deal with lower level infractions, not something as serious as a, as a war crime of murder. So it would have a jury, presumably? That's right. It, it would be uh, likely to be a, a state criminal court with a, a jury trial. And have there been similar kinds of prosecutions in other Western countries? There have been a handful of cases relating to torture and mistreatments in Iraq, for example, 
but they uh, very often, and this is this is true in Israel as well, have tended to be prosecuted through the military justice system rather than as war crimes charges per se. That matters, of course, because if you charge it as a war crime, that best reflects the harm that's been done and, and gives justice to the victims. Uh, it also generally would lead to a longer term of imprisonment than a, a simple military discipline infraction. We're talking here about war crimes and, of course, overseas. Uh, the chief prosecutor for the International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for both uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin and also Russia's Commissioner for Children's Rights, Maria Lvova-Belova. The Hague-based courts say the pair are criminally responsible for the unlawful deportation of children from occupied areas of Ukraine to the Russian Federation. How significant is this arrest warrant for war crimes committed in the Ukraine theatre of war? It's pretty remarkable how quickly the court has moved on this because investigations generally take a much longer period to move to the stage of issuing an arrest. It's also the, the, the head of a permanent member of the Security Council, one of the great powers in the world, being indicted here. And that's a pretty remarkable step as well. It's enabled by Ukraine referring the situation in Ukraine to the court, and that's given the, the legal ability to the court to uh, investigate these crimes. They've gone for crimes against children, really, so deportation or transfer of children out of occupied territory into Russia uh, itself. That's a, a, a one of, in some ways, a, a more straightforward charge to prove. Why? Why is it more straightforward and why would they have chosen that charge as opposed to, I don't know, crimes of aggression or, or war crimes offences connected to, I don't know, uh, the unlawful killing of, of civilians in the town of Butcher or elsewhere in Ukraine? So I think a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, aggression is off the table because in order to prosecute that before the court, both countries involved, Ukraine and Russia, would have to have agreed to put aggression before the court, and that's simply not the case. In terms of other war crimes, often war crimes require prosecutors to prove a certain mental state by the perpetrator that they were either deliberately targeting civilians or that they were doing it indiscriminately or disproportionately in terms of civilian casualties. So that does require a lot of additional steps because in the heat of battle, lots of weapons and munitions are, are flying around. And so to prove precisely what was going on in those circumstances can be more difficult. The third reason, I think, is that you have to tie this right back to the, the head of state if you want to indict Putin. And obviously the, the prosecutor believes that that they have evidence tying the, the, the policy of transferring children out of Ukraine into Russia right up to President Putin. And that may not be the case with lower level war crimes where you, in order to establish the superior responsibility of a, of a president, you have to demonstrate the kind of role that the president played in that decision-making process. So here we're talking about a much discussed policy of, of removing children from Ukraine, they say to, Russia says, to take traumatised children and orphans away from the war zone. It's a, it's a publicly discussed policy, whereas, you know, who fired what or who issued the command to fire on whom and at what in a particular battlefield or, or war zone context is much harder to establish. That's right. Mm. Now, Russia's ambassador to Australia says the court has tunnel vision and says it does not look objectively at the evidence. What do you make of that kind of criticism? 
Well, of course, Russia is going to deflect. I mean, it's been doing that for the past year during the, the war and really ever since 2014 when it's been committing abuses in, in Crimea and beyond. So I think uh, there's no, no surprises there. Certainly, the, the Russian criminal justice system is not doing its job in holding accountable Russian forces for committing atrocities on the battlefield. And that's really one of the key reasons why the International Court is involved because of the failure of the Russian criminal justice system to stop those abuses. Certainly over the years there has been ongoing criticism that the court is selective about which countries and which leaders it focuses on. Do you accept that criticism? Certainly there is selectivity built into the court because it only has jurisdiction over those countries which have uh, accepted its jurisdiction. 123 countries have accepted it, including Australia, but some pretty significant powers, including China, the United States and Russia, are not part of of the court. And that makes it much more difficult for the court to look at their behaviour. But certainly there has been concern that, for example, uh, the court has gone soft on Western abuses in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, when there have been credible allegations of violations of, of, of international law by the US, the UK, by Israel and Palestine, which is another current investigation. So... Coming back to, to Vladimir Putin, he's not going to be arrested anytime soon. How do you see this playing out? Certainly, I think international justice is a long game. Uh, I mean, Putin may not be in power forever. Regime change happens. We, we saw that in Latin America, which led to the toppling of a, a whole host of military dictators, some of whom ended up before courts decades down the track. Obviously, Russia's not going to comply, but it does certainly chill Putin's ability to travel to 123 countries, including some G20 members, for example. Putin hasn't been travelling much anyway because many states, Western states, have sanctions on him and uh, others in in senior positions. But it it certainly ramps up the pressure. It delegitimises the Russian regime further, including uh, amongst potential competing power blocks within Russia itself. And so the court can't prosecute in absentia, unlike some domestic courts. So you have to get your hands on him. And because the Security Council, Russia has a a veto on the Security Council, you're not going to see a situation like we saw in the Balkans, where the Security Council tasked military forces with arresting some suspected war criminals. Like you say, it's a long game. It'll be interesting to see how this pans out. Professor Ben Saul, a Sydney University international law expert, thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Pleasure. Thank you. A judge has overturned the prison sentence of Diana Violet Coco, who last year blocked the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It's an important test for tough New South Wales anti-protest laws. My body was awash with relief. Obviously, uh, we need to protect our right to protest. Protest is such an important part of our democracy. The lawyer for the climate change activist is Eddie Lloyd. She's also on the Greens' upper house ticket in the New South Wales state election. Diana Violet Coco 
also referred to as Violet, is a 32-year-old woman who has engaged in acts of civil disobedience given her concern for the climate breakdown. And she was one of four people who was on the Sydney Harbour Bridge in April last year, just a couple of weeks after those new amendments were made to those laws that saw her facing the Section 144G section for seriously disrupting traffic on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. So she and I think uh, a fellow activist, Alan Russell Glover, and two other activists, they parked a truck on the southbound lane during peak period. They climbed onto the roof and uh, lit a a flare, which was live-streamed, and and this um, disruption to traffic lasted for about 30 minutes. And I think two other protesters uh, glued their hands to the roadway in front of the truck. That's actually what happened, yeah? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. It was about 28 minutes in total. um, But as I understand it from the evidence, the police attended the scene fairly quickly after it was reported they were there and traffic was being directed very swiftly after their arrival. Were all lanes blocked or just one lane? No, so it's just one lane, that southbound lane on the Carheel Expressway that was locked. The other uh, lanes were no no disruption whatsoever and traffic was moving very, as it normally does, on the Sydney Harbour Bridge at about 8.30 in the morning. Peak period. Okay, so, so what was your client charged with? The most serious charge was that 144G charge. Uh, she was also charged with possessing a flare, uh, an unauthorised explosive. Uh, she was charged with resisting police. And she was charged with failing to comply with a police order to move on from the truck. And under what legislation were these charges? So the Section 4144G was under the Roads Act and the other sections were under the Crimes Act, New South Wales, and the Explosives Act. And you're talking there about the Roads and Crimes Legislation Amendment Bill 2022. That's new legislation that makes it an offence to have a protest near a major facility, and this can include a bridge or a road or a tunnel. As I understand it, if traffic or people need to be rerouted or redirected, this becomes an offence. That's my understanding of, of, of how this legislation works. That's correct. And and I think that's why the legislation drew so much criticism, not just from groups like the Human Rights Law Centre and the New South Wales Council of Civil Liberties, but the United Nations um, and some other experts overseas who are looking at these laws very concerned because they're just so broad. And it could mean that you can face these serious um, penalties just by protesting, you know, near a train station and causing people to be redirected around you. And this allows for sentences of up to two years and, and fines of up to $22,000. Yeah, pretty hefty fine and, and pretty harsh penalty. So late last year, your client pleaded guilty to the charges. What sentence did the local court magistrate impose on her? Violet received a head sentence of 15 months with a non-parole period of eight months. And I think she was in jail for about 13 days before she was granted bail pending the appeal, which has just been heard. That's correct. And that also followed a lengthy period on of uh, house arrest style bail conditions. Your client was in court last week and the judge overturned the sentence. He set aside the jail sentence and placed Ms Coco on a 12-month conditional order. Her convictions will remain while the charge of possessing a distress signal was, I think, also withdrawn. In a nutshell, what did the prosecution argue at this sentencing appeal hearing? The prosecution argued that 
Violet's conduct and her co-offender's conduct was incredibly serious. They suggested that her action with her co-offenders was not peaceful, um, which led to the judge putting to the Crown, well, where's the evidence of the violence? And, of course, there was absolutely no evidence of the violence. So he rejected that submission. What did the judge have to say about the evidence of the prosecution around the disruption caused by this protest and and also about the evidence that an emergency vehicle had been blocked from passing the bridge because of your client's protest? To support the Crown's submission that there was a serious disruption and inconvenience to hundreds of people that day, they said, they played the footage of the event in the court And when His Honour looked at that, he said it looked like a normal day on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. You could see traffic moving in both directions. So he rejected that submission of the Crown. In regard to the ambulance fact, His Honour said, how did that find its way into the fact sheet? What have the New South Wales Police got to say about that? And that, of course, is something that the New South Wales Police have to answer because it's clear that that ambulance fact was a serious aggravating factor and played into the mind of Magistrate Hawkins in the lower court when she sentenced Violet. She actually said, you halted an ambulance on its way to an emergency. What about the person in there and their family and friends? So thankfully, the DPP rightly conceded that there was no ambulance on the way to an emergency, and they agreed to retract that fact. So the new facts that Violet was sentenced to did not include that ambulance fact. Now, Eddie Lloyd, uh, one of the, the the four people who disrupted the bridge on that day was Jay Labastier. Uh, he spoke to one of my colleagues, Natasha Mitchell, some months ago, and, and when asked about the disruption he caused, he said, yes, some people were yelling at us and they were very angry and other people were applauding us. But certainly, certainly people were distressed and upset and inconvenienced and disrupted, um, no question. The problem the Crown faced on the day was there was no evidence on either of those positions, whether hundreds of people were angry or hundreds of people were cheering. Um, my instructions are that there, there was a mixed response from people. And, of course, if the flip side of the argument is that, well, you can protest, you can just do it in a way which doesn't disrupt you know, a major facility as defined under the Act here. And tell me also, what happened to the fellow protester Alan Russell-Glover? Aaron Glover had received the week before a community corrections order with conviction, Um, his conduct exactly the same as Violet. He was someone who has had a very lengthy career in the RFS. He's been a firefighter on the front lines, um, seeing the devastation caused by climate breakdown. And his lawyer argued for a no conviction and his honour agreed with that despite the Crown you know, submitting that a conviction was appropriate in the circumstances. But given the Crown had, all the submissions the Crown had made on the elements of the of the offence had been rejected by his honour, uh, a no conviction was seen to be as an appropriate penalty for Mr Glover. I wasn't in court, but my impression is the judge is saying here there is no significant disruption. But I think it's possible to interpret to say that, look, if if there is another separate prosecution where there is a significant disruption, you know, the total blockage of a, of a, of a road or, or rail or, or bridge, then that will be reflected in the sentence, 
the offender receives under the the Roads and Crimes Legislation Amendment Bill 2022. Do you acknowledge that that is quite possible? I mean, here we just have a sentencing appeal decision made on the facts. This legislation still stands. I guess what this appeal has done, it has set the benchmark uh, as a precedent for people It's the first appellate decision of this particular law and the judge has quite rightly deemed violent and co-offenders' conduct to fall at the lower end of objective seriousness for this particular offence, which within it has the elements of seriously disrupt. So you must seriously disrupt to be guilty of this offence. So if people are going to be blocking more lanes of traffic or there's a bomb scare on the bridge or something like that, then they are more likely to be facing a full-time term of imprisonment. The penalty, of course, is maximum is two years uh, term of imprisonment at the moment. So if it is a very serious disruption, it would be deemed as being a higher level of criminality and they will be exposed to a, a punishment of custody. Eddie Lloyd from Lloyd Law, thanks for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you, Damien. Relook, rethink, reimagine. Because right here, right now, it's time to take a closer look at Botox Cosmetic. In handing down a big legal win to a cosmetics company, the High Court has put a deep frown on the face of the makers of Botox. The decision's a significant victory for consumers and small traders. That's the view of Mark Davison. He's special counsel with Knightsbridge Lawyers and also a professor at Monash University. Mark Davison, who are the two sides in this case and what products do they produce? Botox sells a product which is injected and it's an anti-wrinkle product. To take a closer look at Botox Cosmetic, the only FDA-approved treatment for the temporary improvement of both moderate to severe frown lines and crow's feet. See what Self-care sells a cream which is an anti-wrinkle cream or an anti-aging cream. The original instant Botox alternative, clinically proven to erase wrinkle appearance under the eyes and on the forehead in just five minutes. Now you've erased wrinkles and bags in just minutes and relaxed wrinkles for the long term, you're now ready for the next step in your injection-free anti-aging routine. So they're the two parties in question. Halvagen owns the trademark Botox and objected to certain actions by self-care. So what what did Botox manufacturer Allergen claim that uh, self-care had done? Why did it take them to court? Well, it objected to a few things that uh, self-care did. One is it objected to self-care referring to its product as, quote, instant Botox alternatives, and Self-care also referred to their product as Protox, P-R-O-T-O-X, and Botox, allergen, sued for trademark infringement or infringement of their registered trademark, particularly the censored trademark. So the trial judge found in favour of self-care, then the full court of the federal court found in favour of allergen, but the High Court of Australia has just unanimously come down in favour of, of self-care, the manufacturer of Protox, not Botox. What did the court decide? And was the use of this instant Botox alternative in bold letters on the side of the packaging, what did it have to say about that? Well, essentially what the High Court was saying was that those words, instant Botox alternatives, were simply used 
in a descriptive manner. In other words, self-care was describing its product, namely a product that is an instant alternative to Botox. They weren't using that expression as a trademark, that is, as a sign that distinguishes their product from other products. All they were doing was sending the message to consumers of a particular characteristic of their product. So they weren't saying, we are Botox. They were saying, hey, we're an alternative to Botox, and, and, and there, therein lies the difference. That's right, at least in the context of that particular part of the dispute. The other part of the dispute was in relation to the use of the word Protox. So allergen or, or Botox was arguing that Protox was just too similar to Botox, and they were trying to confuse. They were, and in doing so, they were kind of infringing Botox's trademark and, and trying to confuse uh, consumers. And it was agreed that the word Protox was being used as a trademark, that is to distinguish self-care's product from other products. The question was whether Protox was deceptively similar to Botox, and the High Court said it's not. And why not? It's sufficiently different, even though you kind of it sounds like it's riffing off it. One of the key points here is that when making the comparison for the purposes of deciding whether something is deceptively similar or not, you cannot refer to the reputation of Botox. In other words, you've got to put out of your mind the fact that Botox may have a reputation with some consumers. Even though Botox is this giant, world-famous corporation and so it does have a reputation. So in the minds of people, when they hear Protox, they might automatically pivot to Botox. That's exactly the point the High Court was making, that when it comes to a registered trademark, the rights of a trademark owner are defined by the legislation and by the act of registration. There are other rights in relation to one's reputation that one might be able to enforce fire and action for passing off. But when you allege infringement of a trademark, you must do so by reference to the trademark as registered, not by reference to any reputation that the trademark may or may not have. So basically, um, the High Court kicked the trademark infringement uh, allegations out the door. Mark Davison, you're an expert in, in trademark law. You see this decision as a victory for consumers and a victory for small traders. Why? Well, for a few reasons. First of all, I think it's a good thing that a small operator can describe its product, number one. Number two, that it can compare its product with another well-known product, provided it does so in a way which distinguishes between the two products. And from a trademark perspective, it's appropriate that everyone gets the same rights from registration, no more, no less. So what that means is that if a small trader registers a trademark, they will have the same rights when it comes to trademark infringement, or at least this form of trademark infringement, as anyone else. And so it's an equalizing arrangement. It provides simplicity, certainty, and equality. And coming back to the idea of, of one company being able to use the name of another company in its advertising or saying we're better than them or we're an alternative to them, I mean, how common is that form of advertising? Well, it's reasonably common when you say using 
another's trademark depends how they use it. If they are using it in a way which is clearly in order to compare the two products, then that's not going to be a trademark infringement. And that's basically what was happening here. Self-Chem was saying, well, we've got an alternative to Botox. Maybe you'd like to have a look at it. And that's perfectly appropriate. And it's in no way affecting Botox or um, misleading consumers. And that's what happened with the use of the words instant Botox alternative. And I think that's a good thing. And it's reasonably common. And indeed, the legislation specifically provides for descriptions of that sort and for comparative advertising. Mark Davison, Special Counsel at Knightbridge Lawyers and also a Professor at Monash University and author of, of numerous books and articles on, on trademark law. Thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. No problem. Thank you. And thank you for joining me, Damien Carrick. Also, a big thanks to producer Christina Kukolia and also to technical producer Kerry Dell. And on whatever podcast platform you might have found The Law Report on, please do leave us a review. It helps others find us. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.